Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of North American Deer Talk. This is your host, Josh Newton. We're um, just taking this opportunity before the show starts to thank our sponsor, Servit Solutions. Servit Solutions is a health management platform that I operate and run on a day-to-day basis for the Servit industry. And what is that? Well, that's uh, really the focus on health of animals, and uh, we do that through really two two defining factors, and that is one, the use of autogenous vaccine products and the management of pasture or pen densities, i.e. keeping numbers low. So if you want to learn more about Service Solutions, head over to our website. You can check that out at www.servitesolutions.com. We have many resources out there um, for you to, uh, to consume. So on today's show, we have uh, really the the foremost expert in um, chronic wasting disease genomic prediction services, and that is Associate Professor Dr. Chris Seabury from Texas A&M. So we'll be meeting up with Dr. Seabury here in just a moment, Um, but I'd like you to to, um, also consider looking at some of the previous work that has been done. So I would probably start um, with his um, genetic um, assessment paper, and I, uh, you'll, you'll forgive me, I forget the name, but I'll, I'll link it down in the, uh, the comment section below, and, and it's, a, it's a heady paper, right? So, like, you're going to read through it and just be like, okay, that's probably a little much. Um, but start there, and then um, there's also a, a presentation that he gave uh, which was really the the sparking of, of this conversation that, that we have with him uh, coming up here in a moment. But the, the presentation, it's listed on the Nadifa site under Industry News. If you scroll down to the bottom of that page, uh, it's in the lower left-hand side. And, and watch that, and, and that really gives you a basis for the conversation that we have today. Um, and we, we work through some of the origins of... Uh, how chronic chronic wasting disease uh, predictive models and 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 research projects kind of started um, and then morphed into some of Dr. Seabury's work and then we talk about the present day application of of what that looks like um, and the impact that it can have on our on our industry. So this is a, a incredibly time sensitive and important conversation that we have. I hope you enjoy it. Um, there is a, a a lot to distill. Um, Dr. Seabury is incredibly knowledgeable on these things and, and certainly comes at this from a, a, uh, a place of, of knowledge. And, and it can be a little bit hard to decipher sometimes, but just, you know, we kind of go through methodically looking at some of these things. And then we get into the, the meat, meat and potatoes of, of what this ends up meaning for uh, the servant industry. But not only that, this has uh, bigger implications, and and we didn't touch on that today because it's not um, really something that is is I think worthwhile discussing today. But the the work that he has done um, is not only for chronic wasting disease. It just happens to be the first thing that um, we've applied this to, or that he has applied this to um, in the servid world. And it's important to remember that there are other diseases um, that may not carry the regulatory capture that chronic wasting disease does in the, the farmed uh, cervid community, such as EHD. <clears throat> so this 
this genetic predictive modeling um, can be used and I suspect will be used for other diseases in the future. I hope you enjoy this discussion um, and we'll get right over to it and we'll welcome Dr. Chris Seabury to the program. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of North American Deer Talk. We have a special guest today, Dr. Chris Seabury. Dr. Seabury, how are you? Morning, how are you? I'm doing excellent. Appreciate you uh, joining me for this discussion. Uh, we're going to be talking uh, all things chronic wasting disease today. So um, a little bit of uh, background, and, and, and if I get this wrong, please correct me, but you're an associate professor at uh, Texas A&M Veterinary Medicines and Biological Science Center. Is that correct? Yes, I've been promoted, though, so, um, but yes, that is correct. I'm well, a tenured faculty member at the College of Vet Med. Cool. Well, congrats on the, uh, the promotion. Uh, I want to get right into it today because we have a lot to cover. Um, first, I appreciate you, you joining us. Um, so, so we're going to talk chronic wasting disease. And, and of course, for many of us uh, deer farmers, including myself, this can be a, a topic that is really surrounded with as much emotion as there is uh, education, right? So I really want to I want to dial in on that that education and that specialty area that you bring to the table. So if you would, can you can you just give us a, a little bit of background outside of the uh, the deer and the the CWD world and where you started with genetics, genomics, etc. And then we'll kind of we'll kind of dial it into the deer world. Yeah. So I I, can't, I lived on a ranch in West Texas and I came to A and M to get my doctoral degree. <clears throat> and I did that in, in genetics and genomics. And I focused on prion diseases as my, my area of, of uh, concentration. My dissertation area was on population and uh, uh, statistical genetics and aspects of prion diseases. And, and so then after that time, I, <clears throat> I did a few postdocs, one with the with the National Academy of Science member and um, got ready to take a job elsewhere. And at the same time, a job came open here and at AM and I applied for it and they offered me a, a uh, you know, they, they just offered me a deal I couldn't refuse. So I've been here ever since. And, um, you know, the, the, the first stage as an assistant professor was the tenure hurdle. And, you know, I decided about it year four that I was ready for that. So I, I applied for tenure and they gave it to me and I became an associate professor and, uh, and then the time went on and, and I decided to um, promote to the full professor level, which I did. And, and, and that brings us to, you know, where we are today working on, you know, I, I work a lot on wildlife, um, but wildlife funding is limited. And so I've also worked very heavily on, on cattle as well. My, I, I love both. And, um, and so I, I've, I've done a, uh, you know, had a research career in, in cattle and, and wildlife um, genomics, basically, and bioinformatics, so. Great. Well, go, go Aggies, uh, for sure. I, I, won't, I won't say anything about the Longhorns. Um, <laughs> the, the uh, it's always, I have so many friends that have gone to Texas A&M that are, you know, in the deer community. And of course, the first thing I always say to them is go Longhorns. That's how right. uh, the yeah. well, you're, you're not going to get a razz out of me. On okay. That. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, so the, uh, the, the work that was done um, or that has been done in, in cattle, I think is interesting uh, from a genetic standpoint and how the, you know, the kind of EPD uh, modeling has transitioned into CWD. Can you walk us through what that is and how that maybe was a, a base of understanding for um, the CWD project that you worked on? Well, you know, <clears throat> I think what you meant was, you know, in cattle, we had traditional evaluations that led to EPDs or expected progeny differences for traits so that we could have, you know, indexes and estimate an animal's, you know, merit or, or its EPD. Um, and then we transitioned to what's called genomic predictions or genomic selection in cattle, which you know, is used very heavily in, in dairy cattle. And the advantage is that we don't need to wait for a sire to have a lot of progeny before we can calculate or estimate its genetic merit as it relates to a trait. And so by transitioning away from that and into uh, modern genomic prediction, we can take a young bull um, that has no progeny and we can do a genomic prediction on it simply based on its genetics and a genome-wide basis. And we can get a very good idea about its genetic merit as it relates to the traits that we're interested in. So for instance, in dairy cattle, we have a suite of traits that we can predict with maybe 80% accuracy, right? So we don't need to wait for that young bull to, to become an older bull with many progeny or for his semen to be used in a widespread manner before we can figure out what his, his, uh, his additive genetic merit is. We can do that right away. And that's an advantage that has revolutionized the dairy business and really the basis for the AI business now. And so, you know, all I really have done is transition work that I did in cattle and, and technology, knowledge of technologies that were used in cattle and just build that infrastructure in white-tailed deer, at least um, for the initial purpose of addressing CWD. Um, but in reality, the infrastructure I built could be used for any trait. And I've mainly focused on animal health and disease traits in my career and production, you know, food production traits and food animals also in my career. Excellent. Um, so, I, and I don't want to go off on a tangent. This is more impactful than just uh, chronic race and disease at, at, at a, a longer term look. Um, so this is, this is a big deal. That's well, I mean, if today the problem is CWD and tomorrow the problem is EHD or, or TB or whatever, we have a vehicle to um, essentially estimate the genetic merit of animals as it relates to differences in susceptibility. And, okay. and so, you know, we have a, a vehicle to take us forward beyond just CWD. Okay. <clears throat> so can you, can you walk us through um, your, your initial kind of foray into the chronic waste and disease space and then the transition over time? Because you've, you've done multiple projects and, and research um, uh, papers and, and you know, live animal projects, et cetera. How does that get us to today? Can you walk us through that process? Yeah, so 
you know, about 10 years ago, I started saying that what we need to do is the project that we published. But if I'm being honest, I'm, I'm glad that we didn't do that project 10 years ago. And the reason that I'm glad is because <clears throat> technology has gotten better. It's gotten cheaper. I've gotten better at what I do. Um, and so uh, it, had we done it 10 years ago, it may not have turned out as well as it did you know, recently. And so you know, back in those times, it, it, it's, it's perfectly logical, for instance, that the work that Nick Haley and others did is perfectly logical to take what's known as a comparative genomics approach as, as the first step, which is to say, we know that certain genetic variation, for instance, in the human prion gene or in the sheep prion gene, translates into differences in susceptibility for prion diseases, okay? And so as a first step, I saw this unfold and I could tell by looking at the data that, you know, there's, there's just more going on there, okay? And so, and, and, and even in humans, just in 2020, and just in 2020, someone who's fairly prominent in the human community, Simon Mead, put out a paper in 2020 on sporadic CJD, which really just means we don't know why it happens. It's sporadic, it's idiopathic, right? Spontaneous, whatever you wanna call it. We don't know why it happens. And guess what? Surprise, surprise, 2020, Simon Mead puts out a paper that's really like my paper in Deer and says, hey, guess what? We found at least two other genes that you know, are associated with sporadic CJD. So is it really sporadic or are there underlying genetic causes? And so anyway, back in the day when I saw people doing candidate gene approaches, like using the prion genotypes only, I could tell by looking at the data that it just seemed like that wasn't gonna explain all of the risk. And so I knew that we need to cast a wider net. We need to cast the genome wide net so that we can explain as much of the, of the variation in differences and susceptibility as possible. Because you know the problem with the candidate gene approach is that it assumes that 100% of the differences in susceptibility are caused only by genetic variation in the prion gene. And, and you know, that assumption, it, it doesn't hold in sporadic CJD. It, it certainly doesn't hold um, in the white-tailed deer situation that we know of now. So <clears throat> back then <clears throat> I thought, well, we sort of, we need a, a larger, <clears throat> more comprehensive, unbiased approach where we look at genetic variation that's natural and segregating in the farm populations all across the US. <clears throat> and we look at a very large wide swath of that. Um, and we just ask one simple question. What is most strongly associated with differences in susceptibility to CWD? It gives, it gives all the regions of the genome an equal chance to you know, be significant. And you're, you know, if you're only working on the prion gene, you can only discover something in the prion gene, right? And so, you know, that was my motivation. It was also my motivation because I knew that if the heritability turned out to be tangible, that is to say, if we could explain a large amount of the risk 
based on genetics, that it would be a, a, a segue into a proper breeding program that would allow us to um, maximize the reduction in risk, which is why we went down that road in the first place. Okay, so just to be clear uh, for folks that, that do not know, what is the prion gene? So the prion gene is a, <clears throat> it's just a, a small protein coding gene. And that gene encodes a, uh, for a protein that's used physiologically. The exact reason and nature of what it's used for is highly speculated, but it probably has a number of different functions that it, that it performs. And so, you know, for instance, we know that there's some natural genetic variation in sheep that that has a lot to do with differences in susceptibility to scrapie. And we know that there's some natural genetic variation in this prion gene in humans that has something to do with differences in susceptibility to CJD in various forms. Um, and, and we know in, in white-tailed deer that there are a few um, uh, sources of genetic variation in the prion gene that, that do um, they do have um, some effects on, on risk. Um, they just don't explain all the risk. Um, and so I actually did some experiments for you for this podcast to be able to talk more, more clearly about that, right? Excellent. Um, do, do you want to share those now or should we save those for, for after the timeline? Well, I mean, um, yeah, I mean, we one thing I think that's helpful is you know, for instance, I, I think first I would rather start with a, a discussion of the sort of the, the, the most modern research for CWD and white-tailed deer leading up to when I got started, you know, which was to genotype the deer for various codons like um, codon 95, codon 96, codon 226, right? And, and, and based on associations that were found in, in previous uh, papers, people thought that they could select certain more rare alleles there and that they, that would elicit, you know, resistance or protection from, from you know, CWD. The problem is that, um, you know, you, 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 there's two, two or three problems with that. One is um, you assume that rare equals resistance and you don't know that because almost none of the studies have any statistics that show the direction of the effect. It turns out that that guess was in fact correct, but it was still a guess, okay? Um, the other problem is, is that you don't know what's behind those codons. So if you're talking about selecting deer that are double H's at 95 or double K's at 226, you're, you're assuming that all of those are equal. You're assuming that the sole genetic element that makes any difference at all is the double H at 95 or the double K at 226 without knowing anything about what's behind that. What, what is behind that in terms of all the rest of the genetic variation that's present in all the rest of the genome and the genes? Um, it's, it's, you, you, you can't really make that assumption without knowing a couple of things. One is, What's the heritability of the differences in susceptibility? That requires genome-wide data. And it turns out that, that that estimate is high, okay? 
um, it turns out that the that the heritability is it gets up approaching you know 0.6 and as i've added more samples many more to the to the uh, analyses that i've been doing since we published that paper what happens is that the trait becomes increasingly complex there are more regions associated with um, differences in susceptibility uh, and the heritability has only declined a little all right now there are reasons for that i don't want to get into that now because i want to tell you about something else if you assume for a minute i think it's very logical this experiment that i'm going to tell you that i did um, for today it's very logical to say okay um, yes Codon 96, as is shown in my paper, is the largest effect region of the genome, but it still explains very little of the overall risk, okay? Codon 95 doesn't meet the significance level, but that significance level is, is only for those types of papers so that we can talk about the largest effect regions of the genome, okay? Because we can't talk about tens of thousands of regions of the genome in a paper that all contribute a little but when you add them all up, it's a lot, okay? So what we do talk about are only the largest effect regions, those that pass this magical significance level, okay? Codon 95 doesn't pass that significance level, at least not yet. It's trended up a little more with more samples, but it still shows a, it still shows a, a small uh, protection um, in, in terms of direction of effect it has a, a small effect on reduced susceptibility overall. 96 has a larger, but still relatively small effect on reducing susceptibility, okay? Um, 226, the smallest, it, it, it is much more negligible. So for instance, if I go in and do an analysis for you and for people that can't understand why I'm doing this and not just doing code on 95 and code on 96 and code on 226. Um, what if I go in and I, to whole genome data, okay, for maybe 1300 animals, let's say, <clears throat> and I take out all the prion um, genetic variation from that analysis and not just in the gene, but I'll, I'll walk down the chromosome a million nucleotides down the chromosome. So the chromosomes are composed of A, T, C, G, DNA bases, right? So I'll take out from the analysis all of the prion genotypes for codon 95, codon 96, codon 226, and other stuff in the prion gene that people don't know about. I'll take all that out and I'll take everything else out a million bases down this way on the chromosome and a million bases down this way on the same chromosome. So there's no possible way that anything related to the prion gene can affect the analysis, okay? So I've taken it all out. And then I go back and I estimate the heritability. What is the heritability of differences in susceptibility to CWD in farmed white-tailed deer with nothing even close to the prion gene in the analysis? It's, it's, it's almost nearly identical to with to with it in there. It's, it's only gone down in a negligible manner. And the reason is that there's a lot of other regions in, of the genome and genetic variation that are contributing to this. So what we're really doing is we're taking these animals, 
we're reconstructing their genetic relationships, their ancestry based on all this genome-wide data. And we're looking at the correlation of genotypes with diagnostic phenotypes on a whole genome basis, not just on a codon by codon or gene by gene basis. And what we find when we do that, even without the prion data or anything around there, we can explain more than 50 some odd percent of the risk, which, which, which tells you that if you're looking at a double H or a double K, you don't know what's behind that. That double H or that double K, <clears throat> it could have good breeding values. It could have bad breeding values. And I'll give you another example. The breeding value is the estimate of the genetic merit of the deer as computed by me using genomic prediction. Uh, and it, it takes all genetic sources of genetic variation into account. Right. So I've got some SS animals that, in fact, the best SS, the, the best genomically predicted animal that I've ever seen has a breeding value of about negative 0.45. You want the breeding values to be negative. Okay. Negative is reduced susceptibility. Okay. And it's an SS. All right. So it happens to be an SS. It has the best breeding value. It's non-detect, okay? I've also got some animals that have the SS at codon 96 that have bad breeding values. And the reason is in the rest of the genome outside of the prion gene, they don't have all the good stuff, okay? And so, you know, if you, and, and so anyway, it's totally logical and reasonable as a first step to go and do these prion gene studies, but to then, sort of resist uh, any forward movement um, with, with additional uh, technology and data that would positively augment that is illogical. It, it, it makes no sense because you're staring at a double H or a double K and you think that you know they're the best thing since sliced bread, but you don't know what's behind that double H and double K, all right? And so that that's the problem that I've seen being discussed. And so, to really know the merit, you got to know what's behind it. And then even if you have a deer that has great breeding values, for instance, that's a GG at 96, you probably have one that is an SS at 96 and you can start breeding those animals to layer all the positive genetic effects on top of each other. That is to say, things outside the prion gene, things inside the prion gene, right? And so that that's what we've been you know, that's what we've been doing. We've been, we've been working on being able to do that, but it's going to require a little bit broader thinking than just operating solely in the prion gene. So just to, to summarize that, because that was, that was a lot, and I, I appreciate the, uh, the um, uh, project that you did with, you know, the, the, the chromosome separation and then, you know, adapting that to the, the heredity, which I think is really, really interesting for for people to look at, um, to to summarize, you know the the evolution of of uh, chronic wasting disease susceptibility through time has to start somewhere, right? Yes. And yeah. and having that simple uh, monogenic research done first was the was a key step, right? We had to lay that basis, and 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 put put another way. We, we had to look at these specific 
uh, prion codons first, not necessarily had to, but we did, right? And that laid the basis for a, a much more, or a stepping stone for a much more robust, comprehensive look at the entire genome. Is that, is yeah. that an accurate summation? Yeah, and I would even go so far as to say we really did need to do that. I mean, because when I built the array, I made sure that, you know, I made sure that in the content of the SNP array, the, the codons that were discovered by those initial studies were represented um, in the final data set. Uh, now, I couldn't, I couldn't put them on the array because there's this technical problem with the prion gene and a partial copy elsewhere, but I, I, I made sure that we had data um, that we could merge with the array data so it could be included in the array-based predictions and analysis because, you know, otherwise, how would we know that codon 96 is the largest effect region of the genome had someone not taken that initial step one approach? You know, we, we needed to know that. And so um, it just wasn't going to uh, explain enough of the risk for us to um, use it as a sole basis of a breeding program, right? So you, you've, um, you've done that now. I'm just, I'm working through the timeline. So we, we, we have this uh, monogenic uh, trait research. You've started to integrate into um, building your your array out, right? So you've you've looked at this and you're establishing certain criteria for this this array, right? And and for your predictive modeling, one of the biggest things, and you had mentioned earlier, was uh, heredity and how important it was to prove that this could actually be be done and and have validity. Could you explain that a little more? Yeah, so there's two ways to do this. Sort of in traditional evaluation, we mostly rely on pedigrees to to look at, <clears throat> you know, to get some idea of heritability and, as you called it, heredity. And more modern approaches, we since we have these big SNP arrays, right? Um, we can actually reconstruct the relationships, the the, the genomic pedigree, if you will. We can actually reconstruct that with the array data in a way that allows us to use this sort of genome-wide data to say, how much of the risk can we explain solely with genetics, right? And, and that relies on a comparison of all the animals' genotypes and all the animals' phenotypes in this big matrix that we compute on. And so we're able to estimate how much genetic variance there is and how much non-genetic variance, some people call it environmental variance, statisticians call it error variance, but we're able to, to, to estimate the genetic variance and the other non-genetic variance, BE, if you will, and we're able to estimate the heritability from that. And so what that really is expressing is, and, and this experiment I told you where I took all the prion data out is important because what that's really saying is that there is a definite hereditary component, a, a lineage component where the genotypes that remain in this whole genome-wide data correlate as a whole with the phenotypes. That is the, 
the diagnostic data post-mortem for these deer. And so, you know, at, at first, when I first saw the heritability estimate in the evolution of the studies, I was a, a little concerned that in, in my view, I was excited because I thought, wow, this is much higher than I really kind of expected. And, I, and immediately my mind thought, well, that means that a predictive genomic breeding program is gonna work all that much better. But then I worried that, well, people may not wanna know that, they may not wanna hear that, you know, but, um, but that, it is what it is. And that's really just sort of the, I mean, and, and, and it's really sort of our best chance to suppress CWD, right? And so, so when I say the heritability is high, that means that there are definite genetic lineages that are overrepresented in the pile of CWD positives, right? So if we remember historically, there have been some high prevalence herds, right? Sure. And they were depopped. And even though some of them got to 65% prevalence, 70% prevalence, there were these 25, 30, 35% of the animals that remain non-detect, okay? I wanna <laughs> illustrate another point for you. It's, it's not really logical to assume that those 30% or whatever are the only ones not exposed in that herd. That's just not logical. And now that we know what the heritability is and that it's high, it's logical to know and understand that, you know, those animals probably had uh, reduced susceptibility due to their genetics. So when I come back in the evolution of these studies and I look at the breeding values that I estimated for those animals, that is in fact the case. Those animals have really good breeding values, okay? And many of them have many good breeding values, even in the absence, most of them, in the absence of a double H or a double K, okay? And the reason is that those alleles are relatively rare just out there in the breeding population before people started to try to breed for them, okay? So if we rewind and we go back to those high prevalence herds and we got 30% of those animals that are non-detect, why? When you can't explain it with a double H and a double K, so how are you gonna explain it? Well, the explanation comes from the data analysis that I did. There's all kinds of other genetic factors contributing. And when I estimate their breeding values or their merit as it relates to CWD susceptibility, they have great breeding values, okay? And so that's not to say that, that the H allele or the K allele don't have some functional effect on reducing susceptibility. It's just that they don't have enough of an effect <clears throat> to be able to explain what you see in that high prevalence herd. Let's just turn it into like money. Let's think of it as currency, okay? So if I tell you in that herd that <clears throat> the H allele has a 1% frequency and we have 30% of the animals in that herd that are non-detect and 1% equals $1 and there are $100 on the table. If you spend your $1 right now to protect against CWD with your H allele, you run out of currency before you can explain the other remainder of these 30% of these animals that are non-detect, right? You're out of money. So how are you gonna explain that? It doesn't go far enough. 
It's too rare. And so that is also just a, a piece of evidence that, that there are genetic factors outside of the prion gene that are important. I'm, so, I'm glad, sorry, I'm, I'm glad you didn't ask me a math question. I was trying to, <laughs> I was trying to calculate my mind. I was like, I, I hope he doesn't, doesn't. Well, what I'm saying is if you're betting on that H allele is right. and you put your dollar down, yep. right? Your dollar is spent. How are we going to explain the rest of the animals that are non-detect, right? right? Yep. That don't have an H allele. That's <clears throat> rare, right? And now we have people, people have been breeding for it now and making it more common in certain herds. Right. But then again, they still don't know what's behind it. And they've tightened up the genetics on their herd by doing that either for the good or maybe for the average breeding value or maybe for the below average breeding value. They don't know that because they didn't know what was behind the H or what was behind the K. Right. So this is this is a non a non technical question. Um, it's more for personal interest of mine. As you're going through this, at, at what point did you start to, did all the pieces start to kind of click together and say, you know, we're, we're, we're really on to something? Was it when you it, uh, kind of discovered the heredity uh, calculation? Was that a, an affirmation of what you were doing? Or what, what did that look like to, to you? Yeah, there was a, there was an epiphany moment that was like a, a miraculous epiphany moment for sure. And that was sitting right here in this chair in this exact same position. And I remote into my big compute cluster computers. So I'm sitting there. I've got all the data that, you know, is going into the initial paper. And I've just issued the command to calculate the heritability of differences in susceptibility to CWD. And, and it finished. And I scrolled into the log to look at it. And I was just shocked in a positive way, you know, just, it, I was just shocked in a positive way. I just had to take a, you know, I had to have a moment of silence. Sure. It was, uh, it was something that I, I, I was the only one that had ever seen that up until that point. Right. But but then I knew there was also hope in uh, reducing the prevalence in farmed, you know, white-tailed deer. And so, you know, I after I got over that initial shock, I, I actually told USDA, um, you know, let's just let's not get too um, giddy or positive about the results yet because. I'm going to redo everything. And so just for due diligence, I just took that whole project and put it aside. And then I went back to the all the bits and pieces of the original data. I programmed all that back together into a brand new project, went through all the steps all over again, and then sat here and calculated the heritability again and got the exact same result. So then I... Then I felt scientists speaking, right? Like the, that's the, the, the scientist part of the brain saying, you got to check your work. Gotta well, check yeah. Work. And I, you know, like I, I, you know, pretty bold statement to come out and say, Hey man, you know, the heritability is high um, and we can use that in a breeding program. So, you know, wanted to be sure about that. And, you know, even today when I've added way more animals to the analyses that I'm doing, 
the heritability has not declined very much. It's the, 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 the trait in terms of what's associated, what genes, what SNPs are associated with, that, that's gotten more complicated. Um, but the heritability uh, has remained high. Okay, and I, I think the reason the trait gets more complicated is because of differences in the origin of the disease. Everyone assumes that CWD is, that all CWD comes from an infectious origin, you know, that it comes from contamination of the environment or herd mate to herd mate transmission, you know, um, or, you know, some people are worried about crows and scavengers and, you know, so, so, but they, but they all assume that there's a simple sort of singular origin of CWD. And, and I just don't, I don't believe that. I don't believe it at all. I appreciate you sharing that with us. I was always curious on that, you know, because I've, you know, I'm, I'm watching this from the outside and I, I always wonder, you know, what that, what that looked like. When was that, that kind of time where you're like, wow, this is, this is legit. I need to, I need to keep pushing on this thing and, and, and checking my work and making sure we're, we're going in the right direction. Um, so we've established the, the process and you've, you've run uh, multiple different examples and, and projects based on um, the calculation of heredity, the single, um, single uh, genetic look or the single genome look. And, and now you've, you've run your array, right? So you've built your uh, computational board and now you're doing this analysis. Um, what do you start to find? Obviously there's, I'm assuming there's some trends that start showing themselves. How do you kind of distill those out and start building your model out? Yeah, so, you know, after I calculated the heritability and had this sort of, you know, miraculous epiphany moment with a moment of silence and then redid it, the next step was um, that I, I ran this, what's called the genome-wide association, where I, you know, if I've got uh, a 200,000 SNP marker array, then I, I go through each the genotypes for each one of those, which are evenly spaced along the length of all the chromosomes. And I statistically asked the research question, are genotypes at this SNP associated with differences in CWD susceptibility? And I just moved down every chromosome, you know, doing that. I'm kind of anthropomorphizing, but it, it all happens simultaneously in the, in the programming, but each, each SNP is, is tested individually. Um, so after I did that and I made a figure, which you, you saw in my talk, I think you posted my Nadipa talk. Um, and, and when you posted that Nadipa talk, you can see that figure there with all the colored dots. So I made that figure so that I could understand what was most strongly associated with differences in CWD at a very fine scale level, not at a heredity, not at a overall heritability estimate, but on a SNP by SNP basis, which SNPs in the genome are most strongly associated with um, differences in susceptibility. And it turned out that codon 96 was the most strongly associated and explained the most uh, variation in risk on a single SNP basis, right? There was no other SNP that could explain more risk by itself than codon 96 in that, in that analysis. And so 
you know, that I wasn't overly surprised by that. Um, I, I wasn't overly surprised by that. Now, for the reason I mentioned earlier, codon 95 is relatively rare. I've got samples that are, uh, in terms of the H allele, I've got samples going back to 2014, you know, or, or, or earlier. And that was really before people started trying to breed for double H's or double K's. So, you know, obviously a rare allele can't explain the majority of the risk for a large number of positive animals. Codon 96, the S allele is much more common. And, um, and so, you know, that just makes mathematical sense based on the currency example that I gave you earlier. Um, and so, you know, I noticed that. Then I also noticed that, okay, well, there's other signals there. There's, there's, there's other regions of the genome that are associated with CWD. And I started to look at them. What are they? What, what genes are they? Does it make any sense? You know, and what I found was that a lot of them did make sense. A lot of them had to do with, um, a, a lot of them had been implicated in, in, in uh, neurodegenerative diseases in humans of various types. Not to say that CWD is analogous to those diseases or, you know, CWD is going to lead people to get those diseases. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, is that when you have a neurodegenerative disease, they have some things in common. Um, like some of, the, some of the same genes are involved in that neurodegenerative process, for instance. And so if you have genetic variation in those genes, that can be associated with a neurodegenerative disease. And uh, so I started to see some things that made sense scientifically from other studies, but had never been seen before, you know? So you've, you've uh, the, the, for lack of a better term, since we don't have a, a, a visual here, you know, you have a, a graph with a bunch of dots on it and there's some elevated dots which show significant levels. And, and that's, your, that's your distillation of those individual um, SNPs. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, I mean, I've got it here. We can share a screen. Sure. Yeah, so so when when uh, when you're looking at those, that that's just a way for you to kind of aggregate the the data, correct? I mean, you're you're that gives it some visual representation for you, and it, it yeah, you can kind it makes of, it easier. Yes, otherwise look at numbers, right? Otherwise, yeah, you just got to sort and look at numbers, but it helps people to understand. You you got my screen sharing disabled. Okay, here we go. But it, it's actually uh, helpful for other people that don't want to scroll at numbers. Can you see that? Sure can. Yeah, so this is also an important thing to understand is that when we make these plots, all right, we've got our, our sort of magical significance level that we need to surpass to discuss something in the paper. That magical significance level is uh, right about here, about, you know, 4.3 on this scale on the, on the y-axis over here. That translates into a, into a probability value or a p-value of 5 times 10 to the minus 5, so it's pretty significant, um, you know, but that's for polygenic effects. And what we see is this little green dot with PRNP, okay, so it's tallest, 
it's the most significant. That's codon 96. And see down here where these other green dots are, where my cursor is? That, that would be where codon 95 and, and 226 and the new one I found at 37 would be. Now look, look at this. Look how many other dots there are at that same level of significance. You see that? Yeah, that's a, a good ton. way to illustrate it. Yeah, right? just a ton. Yeah. And so that's not to discount the fact that 95H or 226K can have, can have a, a functional effect. It just isn't large enough to be distinguished, and certainly not be distinguished from codon 96, right? Um, and certainly not to be distinguished from all the rest of this genetic variation all over the genome, right? Each dot's a SNP on a chromosome, um, and there's a lot of them. Here, there's 125,000 of them, okay? And so, you know, and like I said, if I go in to this chromosome, see this chromosome, 13? Yep. If I go in and I chop out all the genetic variation, not just in the prion gene, but all around it, and re-estimate the heritability, it doesn't change very much, which tells you that there's a lot of other genetic elements that are contributing to CWD susceptibility or differences in susceptibility other than the prion gene. Yeah, that's a that's a great way to look at it. And I I um I think that visual representation of the, you know, where where 95 and, and 226 and, and 37 kind of lie in that PRNP gene is 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 interesting in a comparative way to those other ones. You know, I I I didn't know that. And when you when you say that and then you start looking across that significance level, if you will, of, of 4.3, it illustrates um, that this is a, you have to look at this in a much more broad context. There's just, there's no other way around it. If you don't, um, you're just, you're going to miss everything. Yeah. And the, the other sort of salient point is that if we draw our little line here at 4.3, that doesn't leave us a whole bunch to talk about. I mean, we have signals on multiple chromosomes, where multiple genes are concerned that we can talk about. Um, but, the, but, but the majority of our genomic prediction accuracy is coming from all these dots that you see below that magical significance threshold, okay? Because codon 96 doesn't, what, it, 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 in this analysis, it explains like, I don't know, maybe five, 6% of the, of the, of the risk by itself. Um, so, you know, all these other genetic elements, when you add them up, even though they have smaller effects, um, they, they, they add up cumulatively to explaining more risk than just the prion gene or just codon 96 or just codon 96 plus 95 plus 226. Okay. And so, you know, you're, you're getting the benefit of leveraging this shared ancestry among knowledge of shared ancestry among animals that are uh, have significantly reduced susceptibility, um, moderate susceptibility, or uh, significantly enhanced susceptibility, right? So with, um, with looking at uh, this graph, what do you, I mean, what do you do with that data? Where does that take you? What's the next step in the process after you've kind of aggregated this out and you, you have an understanding of of, of what it means? Where, where do you go from there? So this, this, this particular 
you called it a graph. We call it a, a, a plot. Sorry. But, <laughs> but it doesn't matter. It, yep. it, you know, it, the, this particular graph is really only um, uh, answering a, a pretty simple question, which is what are the largest effect regions of the genome and what genes um, do, do they, do they uh, point to, if you will. Some are inside of a gene, some are outside of a gene, but still close to uh, a particular gene. And so that just allows us to understand what the largest effect regions of the genome are, something about the biology. Does it really help us in a breeding program, right? Um, it, it helps us to understand this plus the heritability estimate helps us to understand that, um, you know, we need to evaluate a, a breeding program for, you know, potential accuracy, um, which is where we went to in the next step because we knew the heritability was high. And so now that we've shown and discussed what the largest effect regions are, now we're more interested in how well can we predict um, the breeding values or even the diagnostic phenotypes uh, of the animals based solely on genetics. And, and so that was the next step that we went to, which is, which is different from this. This is genome-wide association. Um, we went into genomic prediction as the, the second step. Okay. So you have to, you have to, you got to know the data and then start on your predictive model. So once you have this, it's the basis to work from for the, the predict, the prediction uh, aspect of things. Is that, is that right? A, a little bit. This, we don't really need this to, to, to do that, you know, and I don't want to get too complicated, but sure. every trait has a different architecture. Just like every person has a, a sort of a, every person has a house that has a, a bit of a different architectural design. Every trait has a, a, a different architecture. This trait, as you can see, has very few large effect regions of the genome and many small effect regions. That's its architecture. So we wanted to know the architecture and we wanted to know what the largest effect regions were. And given the architecture being what it is, we needed to use that to select an appropriate uh, statistical model for doing the genomic predictions and trying to implement a breeding program. So um, that more specifically, I think, answers your question. Um, okay, so I want to I, I want to kind of fast forward if if we can um, to to modern day to today, right? And 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 look at what this means for producers and you know application, how it's used, analysis, et cetera. Unless there's something else that we missed before we jump there. No, I mean, I okay. think that right now, so a couple of years ago, I was at a USA HA meeting and I said, you know, um, one of the things that we need to do is either start working in herds that are positive or select animals that we think have some type of, of uh, genetic predisposition that would reduce their susceptibility and put them on an infected ground, okay? I'm, I'm, I'm resisting using the term resistance because, you know, to, to say that an animal is completely resistant requires a certain series of experiments, whether it's an on the hook sort of live animal thing or whether it's done in a BSL-3 ag indoor facility, you know, you know it, it, 
it requires a certain uh, experimental design. So I'm, I'm, I'm resisting using that word. Um, but I do think that there are probably some animals out there that really truly are, you know, resistant. Um, it's just that they, they have to be found, okay? Um, and so then you got to ask yourself, what's more important? Is it more important to find, to spend all of our time and money and years to find two or three resistant animals? Or if we already know that the heritability is high, should we start in a breeding program removing moderate and highly susceptible animals from the breeding program and enriching for animals that have reduced susceptibility, okay? Because that's where the resistant animals are gonna be anyway, all right? And, you know, I don't know that we have time to <clears throat> wait three to five years, you know, on some animals right. that, you know, for instance, I know there's a study that's ongoing that is experimentally challenging animals in an indoor, you know, facility. But those animals were all pre-selected based only on the prion codon genotypes without knowing what's behind it, okay? We have an opportunity not only to, to reduce the susceptibility of, of the farmed herds as a whole, but to find those animals in the same process, okay? If in fact those resistant animals exist, we're going to find them by implementing a genomic-based breeding program through the estimation of the breeding values. And so, you know, if you want to reduce your risk, um, I think that's the way to do it. So when I, in, in the evolution of past the paper, you know, USDA said, you know, great, fine. We, uh, you know, we like the, uh, we like the blind predictions that you did with a machine learning approach where, you know, the machine, the machine rewrites the data into new projects where it removes the diagnostic phenotypes from a certain proportion of the animals uh, a large number of times. And I just keep predicting on them. And then we look on average, how accurate am I at doing that? Well, they like that just fine, but they said, you know, we also want to do a, a blind validation, right? Which is like me taking a test in college. You know, they're going to send me samples. I predict on them. I turn my test back in and they tell me, you know, which ones were positive. If there are any in the batch they gave me, I pretend like I'm the manager, right? And I'm risk averse. So when I see the samples, I say, okay, I'm going to highlight these animals. These animals are susceptible enough to be positive if in fact they are exposed or if in fact it can happen spontaneously, because that also would be captured in my heritability estimate, in my opinion. And so then I, I give that I give that back to them and they grade me on it. It turns out that I'm consistently getting better, but they're and and doing and and <clears throat> having the, you know, if 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 we were gonna give me a grade, like on efficacy, for instance. How much did you reduce the prevalence of CWD in your samples that you blindly predicted on, right? If you were to remove them. Greater than or equal to the National Scrapie Eradication Program is the answer. You know, the overall average was like 0 
on sensitivity, okay? So it's clear that it works, but there's some attrition there, you know, like it just depends on herd, depends on samples. Like how many of them are gonna meet that line of being moderately to highly susceptible depends on individual herds, right? But I haven't seen any individual herds yet that, that or batches of samples that were uniformly moderately to highly susceptible. Everyone seemed to have a mix. Um, it's just uh, some had the proportion of the mix a little different. So I would say that <clears throat> we already know that, you know, the prion gene isn't going to give you, as just looking at those codons, the full amount of protection that you can have. Why not put on the full armor? Why not use the full protection, you know? Um, that's what you're going to get with the breeding value. So step one is you get the breeding values. You keep the animals that have the best breeding values um, that, that meet the cutoff that I would estimate and calculate. And then you try to make the animals that you're breeding have the most negative breeding values possible and layer on top of that the beneficial alleles at codon 96. You can put code on 95 in there too, if you want to, um, 226 if you want to. Um, and once you layer that all on top of each other, <clears throat> now you have, you know, pretty much everything that we have to work with. All right. And <clears throat> that, that is, that is how they use it. You know, I mean, if you, it's like a, it's basically like a, a an insurance policy, only it's a biological insurance policy. You know, how much insurance you wanna buy is, is based on what you have to work with and how you work with it. Because if you decide, well, you know, and I've seen this already in a, in a herd, you know, this is my best buck over here, or I have two best bucks, right? And I wanna use both of them for breeding, you know, for <clears throat> stalkers, for hunting or, you know, whatever. And one of them has really good breeding values, but also produces um, really good uh, in the way of the economic traits that are important to breeders. So it, it, it's, it's got everything. It's, uh, you know, it's got the good breeding values for CWD. It also has all the good attributes, characteristics, and of, of what they want to see in a production animal and its offspring, okay? On the other hand, we got this other buck that has bad breeding values, okay? So it's moderately, at least moderately susceptible, at least, maybe more than moderately. But it produces good offspring and it's got all the characteristics that you would want in a, in a breeder buck in terms of, of its <clears throat> antler qualities, early maturity, everything that breeders would want. But it's not really an asset to your operation because if you're trying to then move your breeding values as rapidly as you can to the negative scale, it's gonna drag some of those down. <clears throat> so you have a choice. Do you not use that animal or do you use that animal for one year and then that way to attempt to capture some of its, uh, some of its attributes for, for good economic traits and then take all the offspring and only breed them back to the to the to the ones that have the best breeding values from that point forward okay that puts you that puts you a year behind and it puts you with 
at a lower level of breeding values starting with when you get those offspring from that from that sire, right? That's an individual choice that a breeder has to make in terms of risk, unless somebody in the future makes some rule about breeding values. But to my knowledge, <clears throat> the uh, the federal government in the way of USDA APHIS and the way of our, at least our local um, DNR people who control our deer here in Texas, they, they, don't, they, they don't have any immediate plans for making any rules like that. So it boils down to how much risk do you wanna take and you know, how much, uh, you know, what, what breeding values do you have to work with? You know, what is the material that you have to work with? And one more very important thing, you know, people in order to breed their herds up to answer your question, how are breeders gonna use this or how should they use it? To breed their herd up, to genetically improve their herd in terms of reducing the susceptibility to CWD. It's almost, for a lot of people, it's almost gonna be very much necessary for them to be able to buy and sell animals or buy and sell semen or buy and sell embryos you know, the types of things that they were already doing, because let's say your herd, <clears throat> let's just pretend this is all pretend, but let's say we profile your herd and we find that, you know, you, the best breeding values that you have are negative 0.259, okay? And then you've got some that are close to that, but, but you know, bigger, more toward the other direction. Well, <clears throat> if you want to be able to produce animals that have breeding values that are more negative than negative 0.25, if your goal is, well, I want to get my whole herd up to negative 0.35, you're going to have to go source materials elsewhere, you know, because you have a genetic ceiling in your herd and that is it. You, you've got a genetic ceiling there. You need to bring in some more animals to help you uh, improve your breeding values, right? And those animals need to have better breeding values than the animals that you're currently working with, whether it's by way of semen, whether it's by way of cover buck, whether it's by way of does, whatever. That That's how it's going to have to happen. And if you want to layer, you know, the prion codons on there too, fine. That's great. Go ahead. But it, it may be a little more difficult because <clears throat> if you think about it, um, if you started selecting for rare alleles like H and K and breeding them to homozygosity, what people call double H's or double K's, that tightened up the lineage in, in, in your herd. That tightened it up, okay? It either tightened it up toward more negative breeding values, which is beneficial. It tightened it up to uh, you know, breeding values that are just somewhere in the middle, which is going to be average or moderate susceptibility, or it tightened it up on the other end, highly susceptible, okay? So you don't know that until you test the animals. So, um, you know, those are things that need to be considered when, when you start doing this and how to breed the animals. Those things have to be considered. So from a... <clears throat> And I, I, I appreciate that. I think that's um, uh, incredibly useful information um, from just from a, a purely like breeder's perspective of what what this is in the real world. Um, and I'd like to I'd like to capitalize more on that uh, that area. So um, you, you you 
stated that uh, there's, there's these breeding values and the negative ones are lower susceptibility and the, the more positive ones have more, more susceptibility. Right. Um, so when, when we look at this, this susceptibility, you know, negative, AKA non-detect, right, is, is good. We want that. Um, and, and in your sampling, it, it appeared to me from what I saw in your, your breeding values graph that there was a more, uh, there was more proportion to that negative or least susceptible side in the sampling that you, you've done. Do you expect that that range will continue or ask, ask differently when you continue to do more analysis from, from breeders, do you think that we're going to see more towards that left side of the graph, more breeding values, or is it going to, is it going to end up evening out? What, what, what do you, what do you think on that? Well, I think I know the question you're trying to ask me and it requires two explanations. So in that graph you're talking about, the reason it looks the way it looks is because of the number of non-detects and the number of CWD positive samples that are represented by that graph, okay? And that is also representative of, of what's really happening out in, in the in the in the field, if you will, with with um, you know breeders. I mean, we 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 don't have high prevalence of CWD as a whole among breeders. All right, um, we have seen an uptick of prevalence, uh, you know, across the United States. But um, you know, if we, for instance, if I were to take a dart and throw the dart into a map of the United States and it hits a state and it hits my county here, right? Um, and then I look at the prevalence of, of that, right? It's gonna be low, okay? So um, part of what you're seeing there is a, a reflection of, of the prevalence of CWD in the samples used in the analysis, which come from herds that were depopped because they were positive. So we've got positive animals that are enrolled into the study and non-detects matched to the same herd being depopped enrolled into the study. And, <clears throat> and so, um, you know, that's part of the reason that you're, you're seeing that. Now, when you're seeing that, that's also an example of a directly estimated breeding value, which is different from a prediction, okay? All those animals, all those animals have post-mortem diagnostics. So they're their status in terms of CWD is not unknown. They're not alive, they're dead, okay? And so when we directly estimate the breeding values, that's what you see in the graph, okay? And that's different from predicting on samples in your herd, that's a prediction, okay? And the way I make that prediction and the way this is done in cattle and everything else, right, is that I have to estimate the SNP effects, the allele effects of all the genetic variation across the entire genome, right? And I do that with samples that have post-mortem diagnostics. That's how I train the computer to predict on new samples, right? That have no post-mortem diagnostics that, that are alive, if you will, or, or are unknown. So once I know what those allelic effects are, how big they are, what direction they are, are they toward protection? Are they toward susceptibility, right? For 
125,000 of them, once I know that, then I can take your animal and I can say, okay, <clears throat> what are the genotypes that your animal has? It's SNP number one, all right? I know what the genotypes are. I know what alleles it has. I can, I can then use my allelic effects that I estimated one SNP at a time cumulatively and basically sum them up to a breeding value for that animal, right? That's where I get the breeding values that are predictions, right? Now, when I estimated the accuracy of this very approach in the paper, I told you I had a machine learning approach that would rewrite the program and erase the diagnostics. I did the same thing there as I did in the blind validation study for USDA as I would do for your animal. And it works, but it's still a prediction as opposed to a directly estimated breeding value from an animal that has a post-mortem diagnostic. So if I estimate the breeding value for your animal today, right now, that's alive, it would be X. If we go and we, if, if that animal dies tomorrow, and we go and we get a post-mortem diagnostic on it, and we then directly estimate its breeding value, it's going to change a little bit because now it's, it's going to be part of the pile of samples that I'm using to estimate the allelic effects, right? And so it would contribute to that now and they would be averaged out across all the animals. And so it would change it a little bit, but what it wouldn't do would be to change it so drastically that, that, it, that it isn't, that the prediction isn't useful for the breeding program. Do you understand that? I do. And I, I have, I have uh, two follow-up questions to that. So number one is the, does your, does your AI improve as you do more predictive genetic analysis or does it, it does it improve based on the, the finality or, or, or uh, post-mortem diagnostics or how is that set up? It, the ultimately the, the breeding program is going to be most enhanced by um, two things, uh, three things maybe, and maybe I'll say four in a minute when I think of the next one. But first, the pile of samples that has post-mortem diagnostics, as it grows, I'm able to more accurately estimate the allelic effects, okay? And when I lift those over to make a prediction, then it, it, it makes the precision on the prediction better, okay? The second thing is, I think that CWD has multiple origins. And I see some of that in some of the new analyses that I'm doing. So if I start to find some things over there that are meaningful, then we can add those things to the pile uh, on top of the breeding values. You know, For instance, if I find a signal and a genotype that I think is important instead of just looking at, okay, now we got our good breeding values and we wanna, we wanna put, you know, put on 96SS on top of the good breeding values, then we may have something else we wanna put on top of that, right? That's a new discovery, right? So I'm always, I'm always working on these types of things, right? And so being able to tweeze those things apart is also going to make the predictions more accurate, right? 
really people assume CWD all comes from the same place. They all assume it comes from carcass contamination or environmental contamination or herd mate to herd mate transmission, all right? We know in humans and other mammals that prion diseases can be hereditary. That is, they can have a mutation in their prion gene that disrupts its, its structure, right? It's folding and causes a hereditary prion disease, right? Misfolding of the prion just due to a genetic defect, all right? We know there's iatrogenic, right? And we know that there's infectious, all right? So we know that we can get sort of iatrogenic or mechanical infection by using, let, let's just say that I do AI, right? And I just go around and do AI everywhere using the same set of instruments. Well, that, that would be a way to transmit CWD, right? That isn't, you know, from infected ground or another infected animal, but then that animal is a point source of infection when it starts to shed for other animals. But what about, can it occur sporadically? We see sporadic cases in humans, right? Spontaneous, sporadic. I think the answer is probably yes on a, on a low frequency, right? And so it's difficult to put your finger on that. You know, it's difficult to separate that because when we run the diagnostics, it's either CWD positive or it's non-detect. You don't know why or how, okay? But I've, I've come up with a way to sort of try to indirectly tweeze that apart. And I have tweezed, I have been able to tweeze a little piece of that apart that might be important. And so, you know, to answer your question, all these things cumulatively together are going to make this better and more accurate. But, you know, just, just like when we started at step one with the prion codons, um, you know, we started in this genomic selection thing at about step five, because, you know, when you, if you look at that paper, there's a lot of things that had to happen. There was whole genome sequencing, finding all the genetic variation, placing all the genetic variation on a custom engineered array technology validating that, running a genome-wide association, estimating the heritability, doing the genomic prediction to see if we can make a breeding program, um, doing a blind validation to further test the prediction and breeding program aspect. And then today, me trying to tweeze something else out of that as an origin. Because as I make that pile of samples larger that have post-mortem diagnostics, the trait architecture becomes more complex. That tells me that there are probably multiple origins of CWD, right? And, and that's a hypothesis, but I do find some evidence that would be in support of that, if you will. So if I can ever fully tweeze that apart, it may help this be even more accurate, you know? I appreciate that. And I, I, one of the reasons I ask is because, um, you know, this, this technology is going to be available commercially for people to use um, very soon. And um, I know, uh, myself included, you know, we're, we're excited to do that. And, and I, 
I, I look at the type of modeling that you've done and, and, and I'm, not, <clears throat> I'm not an expert in that by any means, um, but I would just think that the more data that's aggregated into the system, the, the, better, it, the better it gets, right? Like more information yeah. is good. Um, so that was my, that was my, my general question. Um, yeah, so we we're hoping that you're, you're exactly right about all that. The, the, you know, the, I, I built a smaller array to drive the price down because price matters and uh, you got it. You can't get stakeholder adoption without it being affordable. Um, and, you know, you got two hurdles there. Price is one. The other is using the information uh, as wisely as you can use it to maximize your benefit uh, as a as a stakeholder. Um, we're, we're, we're at a stage right now where we're trying to validate that commercial technology and it's not quite done yet. Um, so uh, we have it in our hands and we're just trying to do our due diligence to validate that it is going to do exactly what I designed it to do. Um, and at least early, early tests and indications look pretty good so far, but it's going to take a little bit of time to keep working our way through it. So I would say that we're going to have a definitive conclusion to that in the next couple of weeks. And you know, it either is or it isn't. But I, from what I've seen so far, it it looks like it's working in the manner in which it was designed. So I'm hoping that'll hold up. You know. Yeah, that's a that's a positive thing, and I, I we all we all hope the same. Um, okay, so let's walk through some practical aspects of this. Um, a producer, um, and and I'll, I'm going to fill in a couple of the blanks for for the folks listening. Um, the producer takes uh, one of the um, all flex taggers with the little TSU tubes. They do a, a tissue punch out of the ear. They send that to NADAR. Right. Tell us, walk us through what happens when that um, shows up at NADAR and then ultimately to the point where there's results provided back to the consumer. What is that process? Yeah, so um, I'm going to give you a, some some generalized walkthrough of that because I'm not on site over there every day. And, sure. You know, I, I I am there. I am a consultant for them. I am the inventor of the parentage technologies for white-tailed deer and mule deer, the SNP-based approaches. I also did set up the microsatellites at GeneSeq for that purpose too. But we're getting away from that. Um, so I'm, I'm not like day-to-day, -day, you know, daily operations, but you know, what happens is they send the sample over there, they enter the sample into the Nader data database. So it's got a Nader number if it doesn't already. Um, and then they batch those samples together and they send them to GeneSeq. And GeneSeq uses a robotic DNA approach that um, with those TSU tags, and it makes it less prone to error. And so they extract DNA from those tissue punches from the ear and once they've extracted the DNA, they use that DNA with the array. And essentially it's like, if, if the array, it's much smaller than my phone here, but, but let's just pretend that, uh, that this is it. it, it uh, it's like a little computer chip for which they drop a drop of DNA on it. And then um, once they do that, they have to use a, a scanner and a, and a computer that reads back a genetic profile of that animal which is all the genotypes on the array. In this case, for the smaller affordable array, it's gonna be 50,000 or so SNPs, right? 
And so then once they've collected all that data, um, they send that data um, back to Nader for parentage and Nader uses it for parentage, but they also um, give that data to me to run the uh, genomic predictions um, for whoever has ordered that, right? And that also includes the prion data. Now we have to generate that prion data a little differently. We use something called genotyping by sequencing. We use a, a next generation sequencing approach to do that as accurately as possible, um, which is um, makes those genotype calls as accurate as they can possibly be. And we merge those together, that prion data and the array data. And then I make the predictions. Once I make the predictions, I would send them back to Nader and Nader would share those with um, their clients. And what I've asked is, um, I've asked that, you know, all of the samples uh, be anonymized the way that USDA gives me samples. You know, USDA, when they give me samples, they're, they're dummy named with the number. I, I don't know what they are. I know it's a buck and it's six years old and it comes from the Eastern part of the United States, but I don't know. I don't know where, where it's, I don't know whose it is, where it's coming from. I don't know what its name is. And so, you know, I told Nader, I, it's very important to me that you only give me the samples to do this that are anonymized with these, um, you know, Nader numbers, right? Because I'm not part of the database, you know, I'm not a breeder. Um, so, and, and nor do I have access to it. So they're going to give me the the samples anonymized. I make the predictions. I send them back. That keeps people from trying to say, well, you know, Seabury's a southern guy, and you know, he 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 likes the southern guys more, and he he doesn't want to work on these northern deer, right? Because I've I've actually heard people say things, you know, like that, and and I, you know, my study has plenty of northern deer in it, and and the blind validation has even more northern deer, and you know, it, it, Wisconsin and, and, and Pennsylvania and, you know, Iowa, I mean, all, all kinds of stuff. So, you know, um, but just just to remove that from the equation, that, that way, all they are is numbers to me. They come as numbers, they leave as numbers, right? And then if someone wants to engage me privately after the fact <clears throat> and de-anonymize their stuff because they're looking for an opinion or, or some, a little bit of advice. Josh Newton calls me and says, Hey man, can you look at my spreadsheet of these animals and tell me your opinion or, you know, what, what would you do if these were yours or, you know, whatever, you know, see then, then you're that that's you, you're, you're, you're removing the anonymity from the situation, but that's your choice. Right. And that's after the fact that's after I've already, predicted on the sample. So um, I just thought that that was the best way to do it to prevent any sort of um, any sort of suspicion that, you know, anything else other than just crunching the numbers was going on. Right? I mean, I, I come down to Texas once or twice a year from PA and I still get called a Yankee after going down there. for <laughs> So it doesn't, it doesn't matter. It's all good. Yeah. Um, okay. So so I think that, um, you know, that's a, a, a pretty clear definition, you know, on a very high level of, of what goes on. So here's the, here's the, I think the, one of the more important things um, that, that people are wondering, 
So they get this analysis back. What does it look like and what do they do with it? How do they interpret it? Um, well, it's gonna, it's gonna look like, it'll have numerical values that look like what was shown in that histogram that I showed in the, the DEPA talk. Yep. It's, it's a number line that ranges from the most extreme negative number to the most extreme positive number. Yep. And so they're gonna get, they're gonna get, <clears throat> I think what they're gonna get is an animal certificate from Nader that has their animal's ID. It'll have the breeding value that I calculated on it, right? And I told them, I also want them to put the codon, the prion codon genotypes on the same certificate. That way it makes it easiest for people to consult it as a resource, right? Or in, in terms of, um, you know, in, in, in terms of doing business, everything's all in one place. But, um, and so that's, that's, you know, that's what they're gonna get. They're gonna get a, I think, at least based on our discussions, they're gonna get a, a certificate that has their breeding value as well as the prion codon genotypes for each animal, right? And then I've also, I've toyed with including some additional information, but I'm not gonna do that. I'm gonna, I think I'm gonna put that on like the Nader website instead so that it can be updated because once you give somebody a certificate, you can't update it, you know? It's permanent. Yeah, and so for instance, if Josh Newton's a smart guy and he says, all right, <clears throat> what, uh, you know, what, uh, I've got my breeding values here, but how do they relate to the national average? Or, you know, what is the average breeding value of all non-detect animals that have ever been directly estimated from, uh, you know, post-mortem animals with post-mortem diagnostics. You know, that, that's the kind of thing that changes across time. <clears throat> As you add more samples into the pile of samples that have post-mortem diagnostics, right? Um, and so, you know, if you, you know, if you got 10 animals that have breeding values that are, you know, negative 0.35 or smaller, right? You know, or, or, or you know, you might want to relate that to a national sample, right? Or I might say, okay, the top 1%, the top 1% breeding value cutoff is this number for all the samples we currently have, right? We currently have being key, right? That allows you to relate the breeding values of your samples to those, to those numbers, right? And, <clears throat> and of course, as we collect more data across time, then those numbers will change a little bit, but they're not gonna change so much that, you know, it's like you went in this direction when you should have gone in this one. It's that, that that's not gonna happen. It's very clear that you need to breed the animals to have the most negative breeding value that you can possibly achieve, right? Regardless of what the national average or the right, top right. 1% or, you know, whatever. But it's still useful to have that information. But since it's prone to change as more samples enter the pipeline for the analyses that I'm doing, it's better that it go on a website like Nader where it can be updated and have a date when it was last updated, right? Because you can't go update certificates for people, right? Yep, no, that's exactly right. Um, so I, I, um, 
<clears throat> I'm curious your thoughts of, of, or if you have thoughts based on uh, the future potential of, of this uh, genetic uh, modeling or, or, or predictive uh, genetic predictions. So if someone is naturally aggressive and has the breeding values on, you know, in that 1% of scale and, and are making these, you know, these, these crosses year over year over year, um, how, how long does it take us to move to these animals that have just incredibly low susceptibility to CWD? Is it just a couple generations or, or what, what do you think that looks like? There is a, there is a breeder's equation for that about and I, I, I'm trying to remember, there was somebody that was asking me about that, but it, and I resisted answering that question because um, it depends. Like I'm not, I can't control a breeding, right? So um, it depends on the selection intensity. It depends on the heritability, right? It depends on the difference between the, 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 the sort of absolute difference value between the animals that have the, the, the best and the worst breeding values, right? <clears throat> and so selection intensity is, uh, is an issue, right? That, that is controlled by the breeder. So, um, you know, you, you have the potential to change the breeding value in a super aggressive approach very rapidly and change it by a lot but you have to have the right animals to work with in order to do that, right? So if you, let's just say <clears throat> somehow your herd, you ended up with a, with a lot of average Janes and a lot of average Joes, right? Well, you need to go and get some more material, okay? You need to source some more material. And you need to source that material as diversely as possible because you're, you know, you, 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 uh, <clears throat> there's one more thing that is not well contemplated. You know, breeding lineage is tight. People like to do that because, for instance, in crops, right? We make a crop line, we breed it tight. With self fertilization is the tightest you can breed it. I mean, that's the highest level of inbreeding possible. <clears throat> the reason to do that is to make sure that there's repeatability there in the, in the phenotypes you want, in the characteristics that you want. You are trying to make sure that the animal, that the resulting offspring are true breeding, right? For the desired characteristics. The problem is that, um, you know, you gotta ask yourself an important question. And that important question is, are there any, are there any recessive alleles that could also be part of that whole bunch of dots you saw <clears throat> that could enhance susceptibility, even though most of the susceptibility is explained by additive polygenic effects, <clears throat> is, is it possible that certain recessive alleles could also contribute? And the answer is yes. We see that in almost every polygenic trait that is primarily explained by additive polygenic effects, that is, it's quantitative, <clears throat> there are always, always almost, if you look, if you're willing to look hardly, always some recessive alleles that are negative, 
that are detrimental, okay? So when you go and you source your animals to um, breed up, you, you don't just want to get one and, you know, and just use one forever. You don't, you don't want to do that. You want to try to mix it up a little bit, all right? <clears throat> and already this breeding for reduced susceptibility to CWD is going to cause some breedings that would have never happened in the absence of those breeding values. So that is going to that that is going to sort of reduce, I think, the probability of some of this negative recessive stuff to a certain degree. Um, but you'll reinvigorate it if you if you take say one sire with good breeding values and only use that sire perpetually. You, 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 you need, same goes with super does or does. You need to you need to diversify a little bit <clears throat> to to prevent that. Right. Okay. Um, so I had uh, I had pulled some of our our uh, listeners, and there was one question that stuck out that I think um, uh, I'd like to I'd like to ask. It it was um, it was interesting. It was based on some other <clears throat> some other uh, animal industries and and this type of uh, predictive genomics. Bear with me here a sec. Okay. So the question the question reads: uh, In some other species where there are breeding values for traits such as production, confirmation, and health, there is a percentage of reliability. Uh, does this data have a percentage of reliability? Uh, will there be one? And will it increase with more participation in the program? Yeah, so, <clears throat> you know, that is true. There are reliability calculations that do occur. Um, there are animal health companies that provide some of that, and certainly some of that comes from academia and from breed associations um, like for cattle for instance there 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 are no there there are no um, uh, current estimates of of reliability but reliability is actually related mathematically and statistically to the to the um, the metrics that I'm already giving you like genomic prediction accuracy or um, the uh, the area under the curve of the prediction and you know various so I've, I've, I've got a whole bunch of metrics that I reported in that paper and a bunch more I've reported to USDA ever since that time um, and you know like this is a little bit different um, than you know typically when we're talking about reliability too we're talking about a different kind of trait here we're talking about an odd disease that has a binary phenotype, zero, one, okay? Um, you're either positive or you're not, right? You're non-detect or you're not. It's not a, a reliability on average daily gain or a reliability on a prediction for dry matter intake or for milk yield or, you know, for dairy 305 uh, milk yield. It's not, it's not, it's not a trait that sort of has a mean and a, and a standard deviation, right? Where, um, and so, <clears throat> and it's also an odd disease, an odd disease that can happen by way of um, ground being contaminated, by way of um, introduction of infectious materials, by way of infected animals, equipment, feed, whatever, and spontaneity. 
if it can happen sporadically. That makes putting a reliability reliability sure. on all of that a little more difficult because um, what we can say with confidence is selecting animals with the most negative breeding values possible is, go, is, is going to provide and elicit the greatest degree of protection, no matter what the origin of CWD is, right? Especially as we tweeze some things apart. So can you have it? Eh, you, can you have it? Some version of it? Yes. Do you need it? No, right? I mean, it's, it's um, you know, like, <clears throat> I, I, don't, I don't really see it as adding a whole lot more to what we already have, but if it's something that people are really interested in, could it happen? Yeah, probably. Yeah. I think, I think uh, when, when, as people uh, look to understand what's going on, they, they draw from their own experiences. And, and some people are familiar with other animal industries and other technologies, right. and, and it's their sense of understanding. Uh, I, I'm cognizant of, of our time here. Uh, is there anything that you'd like to, to leave us with uh, before we, we part ways today? No, I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm well pleased with <clears throat> the amount of progress that we've been able to make in the time that we've been able to make it. I'm, I'm looking forward to that new array being done because we're going to use it for uh, research purposes as well with, with um, USDA. Um, yeah, us, us too. And, I'm excited. I'm excited to get my samples in and, and see what yeah, we got. Um, yeah, and I'm, and I'm just glad that I had a little bit of time to talk just freely because I, I think some of the things that I said, people, well, there were knowledge gaps that people would back and forth uh, in conversations would keep going back and forth without the knowledge that they needed to move the conversation forward. And like I said, you know, estimating the heritability with nothing even remotely close to the prion gene and not the prion gene in the data set yields all, a, a nearly equivalent heritability estimate. So. <clears throat> I mean, it's obvious that we need a, the most comprehensive, powerful approach po possible. And I think right now we have it. It's just, can we get it deployed? Can we get it widely, widely uh, adopted and widely used as recommended? Those are the next hurdles that I see. Great. Well, we, we appreciate you coming on today um, and taking time to, to have a chat with us. Um, it's, it's been really educating for me, and, and uh, I think our listeners will, will draw a lot from this. Um, and as always, stay tuned for another episode of North American Deer Talk.